Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I did six Broadway shows, but I did it from when I was 16 to like 28. And I said, I, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I would like, I'll try something else. So I tried it and I just, I really, really loved it. I still love it. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And I tell you, everybody, I am more than excited today. I actually feel emotional when I am sitting across from my guest, Rita Rudner, because I have followed her career from when I started in this business, and I'm honored that she gave me the time. I am down here at her home in Dana Point at this beautiful, beautiful state on the ocean. And now I know why I'm doing the podcast here and not in my podcast studio, because if I lived here, I would give a big F you to everyone in my life and just say, hey, I'm going to be hanging out here for a while. One of the things that always inspired me about Rita as we listen to the ocean in the background. I think about what it takes to be an extraordinary artist and what it takes to navigate in a world of people that are essentially very broken and people who do certain acts that aren't necessarily the kind of acts that you do. Yet you have to work on stages with these people. And Rita, her act is like the Four Seasons, just the most incredible, classy act you could ever see in your life. There is nothing derogatory. There is nothing mean. There is no language that makes you feel like, oh my God, I can't bring anybody to this show. Yet oftentimes Rita, and I would see her perform, with people like Andrew Dice Clay, Rodney Dangerfield, some of the most blue comedians you could ever imagine. And each and every time, it always appeared like she never had a problem following them, being on the same show with them. She had this way of being able to take that audience and bring them into her world and not let the outside factors affect her. So much so that People like Andrew Dice Clay and the relationship she has with him 
still forms to this day where she just did his television show for Showtime. And that lets you know to be successful in these times as well as the past, you have to be able to stay in your lane where you are, but not be afraid to mingle with other lanes and other people who do different things while still staying true to yourself. And I think of Rita's career and when you sold over 2 million tickets to comedy audiences, that's just all you need to know. If your people follow you from television and then they follow you in the live rooms and they pay big money for you to see what you have to offer, it's tremendous and it means an extraordinary amount as an artist. So if there's any lesson that I gleam from sitting in this beautiful place today is that if you can figure out a way in your profession to take what you do, your originality, and stay true to it, and work hard, really, really hard, and don't be diverted by other people who have different agendas and different ways that they do their job, and just keep going, and you can mingle and go with them and be in their world, but you stay in your world, and people will notice, and if you do that, I can guarantee you, you'll have a chance at the kind of career that Rita Rudner has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. I want to go way, way back. I want you to just talk about what it was like growing up, what the socioeconomic dynamic was, the finances, the family. My mother was sick for, um, got sick when I was about six, died when I was 13. So it was, uh, it was very tricky. And um, my father was a lawyer who didn't like practicing law who wasn't very ambitious and uh we just always had enough money like to get to the next beat you know he i remember i wanted to you know he did what he could i i was i loved learning that's another thing that i was natural to me as i wanted to be able i i was i was a horse i loved horseback riding i played the accordion you can't get nerdier than that and uh, the piano, I put ballet lessons. So, you know, and he was really happy to keep me busy because what was happening at home was very sad. And, you know, my mother was in and out of hospitals all the time and it was, it was bad. And uh, he never really let me know how bad the finances were. But, you know, we had to sell, he eventually had to sell, this, he didn't believe in health insurance and uh, the costs were astronomical. He had to sell the silverware. He couldn't really afford heating in our little house we had. Um, I had this accordion. I found out he was paying a dollar a week <laughs> to, to, to afford this, uh, you know, for rent for this accordion. But he never really let me know what was going on because there was enough, you know, I, w I would come home, I would make my own dinner, and he would be working, and we had to have a nurse, and then my, my, um, I'd make my own dinner, and my, he would take me to ballet class, you know, and I'd spend all evening, and everything was beautiful at the ballet, you know, one of those things. And you were an only child? Yeah. yeah. So I was, I kind of just did my own thing. 
And what was your first inspiration that you wanted to tell jokes and be into comedy? What happened? I just noticed there weren't too many female comedians and there were an awful lot of dancers and singers and actresses. And I said, well, maybe I should try a an avenue that's not so crowded. But you were successful. You were on Broadway. I know. I did six Broadway shows. But I did it from when I was 16 to like 28. And I said, I, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I would like, I'll try something else. So I tried it. And I, I just, I really, really loved it. I still love it. What was the first time you went on stage? Where was it? How long did you take to write that first few minutes? Well, the first time I was... Um, I remember, you know, I was in Annie on Broadway playing Lily St. Regis, and there was a guy I was friendly with, Richard Walker, who was a singer, and he wanted to try out a Catch a Rising Star, and so did I. And we were too afraid to do it, uh, you know, by ourselves. So, we, and we were too afraid to only tell jokes because he was a singer. He said, I can't do it unless I'm singing. So we did this thing where we hired a piano player and we did songs and then it would stop and then we would tell a joke and then song, stop, tell joke. And we got on stage at Catch after a couple of weeks of sitting on the pavement about two in the morning and it was awful. And Richard looked at me and was sweating and was a smile and he said, I never want to do this again. And I said, I'm going to do it again next week. And I just, I liked it. And he hated it. So the next week I auditioned by myself, and then I started auditioning at the Improv. And Chris Albrecht, I think, was the first He was a doorman manager, afterwards the president of HBO, and now the president of Stars, yeah. and he's been a guest on this show as yeah. well. Well, he, was, he said, um, you know, do you want to hang out? Because I think you could be funny. This was at the 44th and 9th Improv yeah. in New York? Yeah, because I used to go there after Annie, because I could walk there. I would go and I would take the bus cross town, and get to Catch a Rising Star after that. And I did that for a couple of months, and then finally Bill Maher, who was the MC at that time, said, you know, you can do an actual set if you want because you've been working so hard uh, hanging around here all the time, and I, I had done an audition that was people liked, so that was, that was that. When you had your first break on Letterman, I know you did five minutes, but in your mind, how much A material did you have? I had really five good minutes. I can't remember what they were, but they were, they were, I remember my last joke. I had the joke because um, I had heard, because it's, again, it's just what you hear and how you use your time. I always tell my daughter, it's how you use your time. I mean, when I was on buses going from one club to the other, you don't just sit there. You take out your notebook and you try to figure it out. When you're watching TV, you're not just watching TV. You're figuring out, well, oh, is this something that I can use? And I tell her with, you know, when she's listening to songs, try to analyze the song. Where's the middle eight? You know, where is the, um, what, what is attracting you to that song? You know, where, where are they taking a breath? Where are they not singing? And what are they doing with, so anyway. Um, I was listening to TV and Howard Johnson's had a new slogan. If it's not your mother, it must be Howard Johnson's. I said, well, there's got to be something in that. If it's not your mother, it must be Howard Johnson's. And that was, I think that was my first big closer where I said, let me see if I can remember it. I stayed at, the, I stayed at Howard Johnson's. Oh, I can't, it was so long ago. And um, 
the maid came in every morning and said, clean up your room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was leaving, the, uh, the lady at the desk said, doesn't matter, I'll be dead in a couple of weeks when I was leaving. Yeah. <laughs> you've done every talk show, Carson Letterman, you've done The Daily Show, Conan, you've been with all of them. Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase. <laughs> Arsenio. Yeah, you've Wayne done. Brady, Lisa Gibbons, yeah. <laughs> you name it. But the ones that were the late night talk show host, obviously Letterman was the king. Yeah, Letterman was all, of, he was our idol. What was it that he brought to everybody that made him so well respected that maybe a lot of these other people, when you did their show, it's not that you didn't love doing their show or want to do their show, but you just didn't have the same feeling about it. There was something so authentic about Letterman. I mean, he kind of let you in and let you know what he was really feeling and didn't pretend he was happy all the time. So I think he let his insecurity come through and his cynicism. He got down to where it was a more honest form of comedy and it wasn't as, um, it, it wasn't as commercial as the other forms of comedy and it didn't follow the rules that other, it was just, he was more iconoclastic, but in a way that we could all, we just all envied. I mean, just using Biff, you know, to be on the show. And I did this tour with Larry Bud Melman and Emo Phillips and Emo, Larry Bud Melman and me in a van driving around for three weeks in the middle of the country <laughs> was so hysterical. I wouldn't give it up for the world. <laughs> and we, we just had a, we had a ball. And um, every time we would pass uh, Mexico, Larry Bud loved Mexican food. And Emo and I didn't. And every time we'd press a Del Taco, we'd hear from the back of the van, Mexican's nice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then Emo used to steal the coleslaw every night from the, from the uh, vegetable tray so he could have it for breakfast in the morning. It was such a weird little... Weird little tour, and um, I was always mis-exercising because I would always find the gym, and I would be exercising. And Emo loved swimming, and he would always swim wherever there was a pool in the hotel, and he'd always ask me at night, I'm not getting too muscular, am I? Because I don't want to look like a, you know, like I, I need to still stay my cat. I said, no, Emo, you're not getting too muscular. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> no one's going to mistake you for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, you have a great relationship with your husband, and you guys have worked together writing. You've written amazing films. They say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a guy if she's going to be with him. Did you know? No. No, I was... Um, he hired me to go to um, Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Festival. Me and Larry Amherst and Bill McCarty. And we went to Edinburgh, and he had a girlfriend. I had a boyfriend. And he was nice, and I stayed friends with him. And I'd always see him when he'd come through looking for shows. And uh, he wrote me a letter, like, a couple times a year. And then uh, one day he hired me to go to Australia, and I had just broken up with my boyfriend. And he had just broken up with his girlfriend. And he had stopped smoking. And I couldn't stand smoke because I'd been in those clubs so long with all the smoke. I said, I can't have smoke in my house. I just can't stand the smoke anymore. And he had quit smoking. And he had broken up with his girlfriend. And I always liked him. And I was in Australia. And it was Christmas time. And I moved in. And then I said, "This I'm just going to have fun at Christmas. And then that's it. He moved back to um, California with me. And we lived there together in sin until his green card ran out. And then we got married. We went to courthouse. 
<laughs> we got married. So it wasn't exactly a big wedding. How did you know that you could write screenplays when you never wrote a screenplay before? You just start. I, I read a lot of books about writing screenplays. Read all these books on comedy, you know, and any book on comedy I could find in the library and Sigmund Freud's analysis of comedy and everything. But to get a movie made, it's so difficult. How many screenplays did you write before that first screenplay? A couple screenplays that weren't very good that we threw away. So take us through the process of how you and Marty actually got... Peter's friends made? Well, we had been writing screenplays and studying screenplay writing, and um, Martin actually grew up with Emma Thompson and went to Cambridge with all these people, Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry, and uh, Emma had married Ken, Ken Branagh, and they were living with us, or staying with us while they were in California, and Ken had just done... Richard III, was it? And he needed to do another movie because it was he had another movie on his contract. He didn't have a script. And the script he had, he hated. So Martin and I had been writing movies, and we looked at each other and we said, we have to write a script. <laughs> this is Because another thing, life is timing, don't you think? If something is happening, you can't say, I'll do it later. Just do it now. Um, we sat down and we said, let's write about something we know. And we had always said, wouldn't it be fun if one of Martin's friends, because one of Martin's friends actually married some kind of a lord, and he, she had a big castle in England. And she was always saying, sometime I want to invite all my friends from Cambridge to this castle, and we can have a fun weekend together. And we said, let's, and we found out that Ken had rent, rented this house where the movie that he didn't like he was going to make and we said, well, let's quickly, let's write a movie set in the house. <laughs> because he's got the house. And let's write a movie about a bunch of people getting together in the house that were from college. Because I know all the... And so anyway, we just wrote about what we knew about. And we used a, a lot of the people that Ken and Emma had gone to school with. And uh, I wrote my part as an American because I one of my... Uh, big lacks of talent is doing accents. I can't do any accent. I'm horrible at accents. And so I said, I'm just going to be an American and I'm going to leave the film early because I'm really scared and I'm with all these really good actors and I don't want to be in the whole movie. So I wrote myself out of the movie. I said, I just want to leave the movie halfway through. <laughs> so so uh, I, that's what I did. And it was and it was a really good movie, and we were very proud of it. So why in the next movie that you guys wrote that got made with Jack Lemmon and Dudley Moore, mm -hmm. did you say to yourself, you know, I'm worthy of a role in this one? Um, I, I guess I had a little bit more confidence. I had already been in a movie, so I said, well, maybe I can be in it. But I still, they were. I was surrounded by a lot of good people, Christine Lottie, and you know, to work with Jack Lemmon was just a dream, and Dudley Moore. And also, one of the most underrated comedian actors that I know of is Richard Lewis. I love Richard Lewis. He was so good in that movie. He was. He's just really good. But he made me laugh so hard. That Martin really, he got so angry at me because there's a big hospital scene when I'm having a baby. And every time Richard would wheel me down and he'd say something funny and I'd start laughing. And I said, Richard, he's going to kill me. This is costing money. You have to make me, you can't make me laugh all the time. So, but it was fun. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, 
and you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BarryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. You can tell me any one line, one sentence, a story, anything. Steve Martin. I love Steve Martin. He was, but again, it was so scary. He, I met Steve Martin because we have a friend who is a really good director, Jonathan Lynn, and his wife, Rita Lynn, who um, I just think is a wonderful person and invited us to dinner. And we walked in and Steve Martin was there. And I met him and I'm just, you know, when you're in awe of somebody, it's just... You know, you have to sit there. And, and then we kind of got to be friends with Steve, and he asked me to write the Oscars with him, one of the people to write. The, and I said, Steve, I've never written for anybody before except me. And he said, well, I have an idea. Pretend you're writing for yourself and then give me the joke. <laughs> and I said, well, I'll try. And then I, I, I did it, and we had, again, we had such fun. We would meet at Steve Martin's house, um, and he's so well-prepared. For, I think, six months before the Oscar started, or maybe eight months, and we'd meet once a month, and then give him what we had, and then he'd do it in a tape recorder, and we'd all, and then he'd have his chef prepare us lunch, and then we'd meet, like, as it got closer and closer, we'd meet more often until he would hone exactly what he wanted to do, and... Um, and we would all sit back. It was just a fantastic experience. But it was very nerve-wracking because when, you know, I don't even like to play doubles in tennis because I like to be responsible for what I do. And, uh, you know, I just would feel so bad if something I wrote him didn't get a laugh. But luckily, everything was good, and he asked me to do it again. And I did it again. And then um, Whoopi Goldberg asked me, and I did it with Whoopi, which was, he, she's, she's a really nice woman, too. So... Um, it was, it's not a natural thing for me to do. A lot of people don't understand this. When you're writing for a show like that, you could write a hundred jokes and... Oh, if two get in, you're, you're, you're a star. And also, you want those two to work that you've written. Bob Hope. I still love his, his movies, and they still make me laugh. Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, the road movies. I think they're brilliant. And I worked with him at the very end of his career, and he was... Uh, determined to keep going no matter you know if he was he didn't see very well and he couldn't remember a lot of things and I was standing there we were doing a, a special at the Columbus Zoo I think it was and I was we had this bit that we were doing and he kept coming out and every time he'd come out and he'd tell the joke and he wouldn't get it exactly right and the audience would laugh and he'd, they'd have to do it again and he came out and the audience would laugh again and he wasn't right and he came and finally he'd 
come out and he'd do the joke right and the audience laughed and he whispered to me can you believe I can get away with this (laughs) (laughs) Bette Midler oh well Bette Midler was working um, in Las Vegas at the same time that I was working in Las Vegas and she brought her show to Vegas and she called me up and uh, asked me to write a Martin and I to write a few things for her show and and we did and then we got to be friendly with Bette and her husband and she came to see Max she's she's just extraordinary she's an extraordinarily talented woman and the thing that you have to remember about women in show business is really I think it was Sally somebody said it I can't remember who said it but if you're a woman and you're in show business after you're 40, it's not because anyone else wants you to be in show business. It's because you really want yourself to be there because people love to throw women out um, after their prime in show business. That's just the nature of the game. They never threw you out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I found another place to work. I found Las Vegas. You're saying they threw you out. Well, not really. I just decided I didn't want to do that anymore. And I wanted... When I... When we went to Vegas, because I was always really successful in Vegas, when I went there, the people who were performing were um, Siegfried and Roy and Wayne Newton, you know, and I said, well, compared to these people, I'm young. (laughs) So maybe I'll be the young, and I was. I was the young person in Las Vegas because everybody else was older than I am. So I kind of found a place to go where, you know, I just didn't, you know, I was just tired of hearing, you know, that the new young 20-year-old was the new comedic find and that's because it's run by men and that's what happens and when Madonna said the most feminist thing that she's done in show business is stay in show business it's true I mean when Meryl Streep has to leave and live in New York and Bette Midler left in New York and you know it's just you it's very difficult for older women in Hollywood so I kind of created my own little niche where I could go to work every day and raise my child and do my act and that was fun but you wouldn't have gotten that break. You filled in for somebody in Vegas. Yeah, the uh, crazy girls. And there's a lot of people who fill in for people in Vegas, and they never get asked to do anything. You filled in, and they gave you your own theater. Yeah, they built me my own theater. That, and, you know, you go, when they offered to build, us, build me my own, my own theater, I mean, we had a beautiful house in Beverly Hills. And another thing, because I always like to, when I read books, Linda Opst, who we worked with uh, for a while, she said... I was reading her book, which is my favorite title ever, Hello, He Lied. Um, great producer. Yes, great producer. Very, you know, brilliant woman. And she, we were reading her book, and it said, ride the horse in the direction it's going. And our horse kept going to Las Vegas. And every time we would go to Las Vegas, I would make a lot of money, and everybody liked me. And every time I would be in, in Los Angeles, something would go wrong, and we were writing movie after movie that wasn't getting made, and... I was getting more and more frustrated because you get you just get manhandled. And even though we were doing fi- well financially, creatively, we were kind of feeling very stifled writing movies that didn't get made. And when we went to Vegas and somebody said, the president of New York, New York said, I'll build you your own theater. We said, let's take a chance. Let's say yes. And then that's when we adopted our daughter. And I started being a mother. And I just started going to work every night. It was good. And then we built a house. And now I don't do it anymore. But I still go back to Vegas. And now I play Vegas two, three times a year. Is there a place of choice that you work? I was working in a casino off the strip called Red Rock. Because it was 
I see, I have these weird reasons. Well, this is my reason as a manager. If you go to a place that's off the strip, normally they need you more. They want to pay you more. They give you better percentages. Yes, and uh, they, they give me a suite and a pool and a cabana. And it's across the street from my in-laws, so I can cross them off the list. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and uh, so it just is, is very convenient. But there's also, I, I might be doing another casino on the strip. But again, my life is different now where it's not my main priority. Johnny Carson. He was great to me when I when I finally got to um, get on that show. Because huh. even after I got on the show, I got bumped a few times. And I was on a show called The Bump Show with me and Rick Scheidner and Daryl. I can't remember. Uh, Daryl, his last name. So I finally got on The Bump Show. And it's just an absurd experience to watch somebody on television for that long. And all I could think of when I sat down on the couch was to look at him and say, you're Johnny Carson. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and you're Rita Rudner. And I went, ooh, Johnny Carson just said my name. It was very hard not to be starstruck. But after that, he became very friendly to me. And he was a really shy guy. And it was his, his stage persona was somebody who could be friends with you on stage, but unless he knew you for a really long time, he was shy. But it got to the stage where he would always come into the makeup room early to say hello to me. And I remember once when I was coming and I had, I was leaving and he was gonna stay and talk to me, but he saw I was with my husband and with uh, a publicist or something and he just, he looked at me and went, mm -hmm. he didn't wanna talk to a husband and a publicist. <laughs> but I can see when you talk to somebody for a living for, 40 years or whatever it is, that you've talked enough. Carnegie Hall. That was a great experience. I did it three times, but only once by myself. And my dad actually came to Carnegie Hall, and all of my friends came, and all of the people I'd started in, you know, my, in comedy, and it was a very, very special night. And at the end, um, I thanked everybody who'd been so special to me in my career, and I forgot to thank my husband. And I said, well, you're so close to me. It just would be like thanking myself. <laughs> and I kind of got out of it. <laughs> Joan Rivers. Incredibly classy lady, totally different from her stage persona. And just very considerate, together, driven, I remember doing her radio show at seven in the morning and me showing up in my pajamas and her showing up with a boutonniere, you know, <laughs> a perfectly tailored jacket and hair and makeup. And I said, Joan, this is radio. You don't have to be, I never go anywhere unless I look perfect. So, you know, she was a perfectionist and, and very supportive of other female comics. Andrew Dice Clay. Again, I get along with him really well. I've always gotten along with him, and he's a very personable, you know, friendly, down-to-earth guy. And when he asked me to do his, uh, his TV show in Vegas, and it was fun because uh, I kind of was able to do some things, you know, additions to the script. So we wrote in what was expected where we wrote in bits where I was uh, angry at him and I didn't like him and I kept wanting to get away from him so it was it was fun to do but it wasn't at all the truth I mean I could hang around and talk to him for forever and we have a good time Dudley Moore 
Dudley Moore was kind of sad because there was something going wrong with him and he wasn't sure what was when we were doing the movie. It was the last movie he ever did. And he was one of Martin's idols because Martin's English. And I always thought he was brilliant. And there was, you know, he, no one was sure what was going wrong with him. But Martin was very, very patient. And, you know, I would just practice with him for hours and hours, you know, after this, after to get him to remember how to do a scene. And all of a sudden you could see and he would light up and do something that was really terrific. And then all of a sudden you could see he would just totally forget what it was that he was doing. So we did have to write a lot of dialogue where people couldn't see it. But I was very privileged to be able to do the last movie he ever did with him. George Burns. Well, I didn't really know George Burns very well, but he asked me to do that special. And I always, when I was studying Jack Benny and George Burns, they were the two TV shows that I absolutely adored. And people always said that I was kind of like Gracie Allen meets Woody Allen. That was, that, that was the analogy that some people would use for me. And I just, you know, I've read all of the books. His, uh, he had a, his manager wrote a book. About, I think the same manager he had, Jack Benny and George Burns. And I always used to read all those books that, uh, about their careers and, you know, how. And I remember some George Burns saying, I thought my career was over until all of a sudden my best friend, Jack Benny, passed away. And then I got that role. He did the Jack Benny part in the movie that Jack Benny was supposed to do. It was the two old comedians living together. And then he said he had a whole career resurgence that he never expected. Because after Gracie died, he just was lost. Phyllis Diller. She, I'm for, I have one of her paintings that she did for me downstairs. And she was such a talented woman. And I can't remember where I first met her, but we started hanging around together. And I had dinner with her a few times. And uh, we used to pick her up at her house in, in Beverly Hills. She had a gorgeous house. And she, again, always perfectly made up. Always, they were, and it was funny that both she and Joan were kind of addicted to plastic surgery. And she, she looked great. I mean, she really, and she was a chef, and she was a musician, and she was funny. And um, we were eating dinner one night, and her eyelash started to fall off. And I said, you know, I'm going to have to tell you, it's going to be in your soup in a minute, Phyllis. You're going to have to take that off. And she went, oh, okay. And she took both of her eyelashes off and put them in her handbag. She was a very fun woman. Jack Lemmon. I'm so excited that I even knew Jack Lemmon. He was so even-tempered and such a wonderful guy to work with. And... I remember, you know, people get some people when they, they're big stars and they've won all these awards and they have their reputations for being difficult. And one night we had to shoot a scene that was um, it was overnight because it was an amphitheater and he went on stage and he had to do a show and we had to wait till it got dark. And he wasn't a young guy, you know, he was, I don't know, late 70s or something. And um Martin said, well, what can I give you in your trailer to make you feel more comfortable? And he said, a coffee maker? (laughs) (laughs) You got it. And uh, one of the reasons we got him to do the movie was he wanted a place to stay with his dog and his wife. And we got him a place and play golf. And we got him a place on a golf course where he could bring his dog and his wife. 
Rodney Dangerfield. Again, meant a lot to me. Started my career off, really. Even though I'd done HBO before that, the thing that really stuck in people's minds was that day that Rodney came up to me at Catch a Rising Star and said, takes a long time, kid. Sometimes you never make it. You want to be on my special? (laughs) (laughs) Your proudest moment in show business. I don't really think of anything as being very proud. I like doing it. I enjoy it. It's always when I think of a new joke. I'm very proud of myself. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. Well, that was not getting a, uh, my own sitcom when Martin and I decided to move to Las Vegas, which is where we did very, very well financially and adopted a child and became parents. Last question. What advice would you have for the young person growing up in an environment that was tough, trying to figure out their way? Repetition and hard work. There's no substitution. Uh, there's, if you're going to get lucky, it's going to come from repetition and hard work. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. That's my life. Maybe somebody else sits in a drugstore and somebody says you're a star. Never happened to me. Hard work. Rita Rudner, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. I rode my horse in the direction it took me here to Dana Point, and I had my fortuitous confluence of events by being here, and I'm so grateful you had me in your house. It means so much to me. Thank you. Want to see the rest of it? I would love to. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, 
one-on-one coaching with me and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.